in this episode. Because um, by not having that understanding of oneself in there and one's own stories and motives, um, then it becomes more difficult to lead and empower others. Okay. And to understand the full team dance, because sometimes, sometimes the self can get in the way of that. Learn to perform practical lessons so that you can immediately learn to optimize your health, happiness, and performance. Welcome to another episode of Learn to Perform. I am your host, as always, Braden Ostepchuk, and today I'm bringing on another excellent guest who's going to give a ton of insight into coaching, leadership, and the psychology of success across all sorts of uh, industries, sports, athletics, careers, you name it. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest. Today's guest is Dr. John Yeager. Now, Dr. John Yeager, I actually had the opportunity to work with him briefly at Norris University, so I was able to facilitate a little bit of a relationship in the past. But let me tell you all why he is such a great guest and why he's going to offer so much value to us today. So Dr. John Yeager, drawing on his illustrious lacrosse playing and coaching career and his organizational behavior work with athletic, educational, and business organizations, John's presentations and training programs have inspired audiences around the United States. As a former elite lacrosse goaltender at the high school, college, and professional levels, he is a member of the Halls of Fame of New England, Eastern Massachusetts, and UMass Boston, Boston State. He was named one of the top 20 New England lacrosse players of all time by the New England Lacrosse Journal. He then translated what he learned as an athlete into high school and college coaching in Massachusetts and Indiana. Extending his interest beyond the playing field, he became a certified polarity thinking consultant after graduating from the country's first graduate level applied positive psychology program at the University of Pennsylvania. In addition, he also earned previously his doctorate at Boston University. These experiences combined to give John a unique understanding of the needs of coaches for continuous learning. John is also the CEO of Jaeger Leadership Group, in which he helps athletic programs, businesses, and schools discover their positive core by maximizing engagement and capacity to develop high-performing teams. His clients have ranged from large corporations to numerous professional and collegiate teams across various sports. And if that's not enough, in addition, John is also the author and co-author of three books, including Smart Strengths, The Parent-Teacher Coach Guide to Building Character, Resilience, and Relationships in Youth, Our Game, The Character and Culture of Lacrosse, and Character and Coaching, Building Virtue in Athletic Programs. He has written for SportsIllustrated.com and has been quoted in the New York Times Magazine and Sports Illustrated Magazine on matters of character and youth sport. And now John has a fourth book coming out, which is called The Coaching Zone, and something that we are going to be able to dive into in more depth in this interview as well. So, John, I apologize for the long intro there, but you've got an impressive resume and there's a, a lot of content on there. But thank you so much for taking the time with me today. Thanks, Braden. It's great to be here and I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. And, you know, just to, to tie back in, I quickly mentioned it at the start, uh, but we obviously met a couple years ago at Norwich University. I it might have been 2017 was the first year, maybe 2016. I'm not exactly sure. 2016, uh, yes. And then uh, online, uh, was working with the team online, then got a chance to see you folks in person. Right, yeah. And I, I do remember that uh, very well. And you helped our team a lot. And we had some great experiences. And I, I think we're going to be able to get into that a little bit later. And before we get into this, so I, I was able to lay out a little bit of your background on lacrosse as a player and as a coach and your coaching, Jaeger leadership. Uh, the books that you've written, 
But before we get into this, I think to really lay the framework and kind of set the tone for people, there was this wonderful story. I remember when you came out to Kreitzberg Library and met with our team that you told about, um, it was at Middlebury and it was when you were playing lacrosse. And I would love if you would maybe just start off by telling that. And I think it could kind of set the tone for, you know, or the foundation for what we want to build off of in this interview. Certainly, Braden. For me, it was a life-changing experience. And, and it's actually a good story to it. It covers all <laughs> of what a good story should be. Right. And it really follows an area that I uh, will be talking more about today called psychological capital. This was mm. psychological capital, which was uh, developed by Fred Luthens at the University of uh, Nebraska and his colleagues there talk about the notion of uh, there's human capital out there, which is human capital of the knowledge and skills of, you know, coaches, athletes, and teams. Then there's the... Um, Social capital, which are the relationships, but psychological capital is based on four components, uh, hope, efficacy or confidence, resilience, and optimism. And the story about Middlebury is kind of covering all those. I, I didn't know what psychological capital was back then. <laughs> but anyways, um, this, this happened back in the mid-70s. Uh, I'm an older guy here. And basically, I played for Boston State College, which is now University of Massachusetts at Boston. And we had our first home game of the season. Very excited about our, our first home game. One is that um, we had a pretty good team. And secondly, I was hoping for an opportunity to maybe garner some um, Division Three All-American honors. And the coach of the other team, Bowden, and he was on the All-American Selection Committee. So with that, uh, I was pretty anxious, but pretty excited about getting, getting, you know, for the game. So got out there, had a good warm up, and played absolutely awful. <laughs> I've been the there. The game, something like sixteen to four. I wish the coach could have taken me out, but the other goalies weren't ready for prime time, so I was stuck there. And so, so basically, got back to my dorm, had to grieve for a couple of days, so I didn't end up going to classes, which was not a good excuse. But Thursday of that week. We were playing Middlebury at home, and that was a chance for redemption. And so uh, we uh, got in. The, I got in the car with my friend uh, Danny Hayes, who was a freshman, and we started uh, driving over to uh, the field. And our field, Smith Field, is located in Brighton, Massachusetts, right on the office off side of uh, Harvard University's athletic complex. You could see this Coliseum there, the pristine green fields, and we were separated by a chain link fence and razor wire on these this dirt glass strewn uh three blades of grass field that we we called our home field and it was a three mile drive over from campus uh anyways trying to get over to the game we couldn't get out of boston because it was red sox home opener so it was gridlock with people and cars we finally show up to our own home game an hour late and so, therefore, I'm, I'm getting pretty anxious about that, concerned, am I going to have a game that I had like the last time? Am I an imposter? And Middlebury's out there, and their head coach, Rob Pfeiffer, who was a big guy, uh, looked ex-military, had a high and tight haircut. He's barking out instructions. They're, they're having very organized drills. And you picture them and you picture us, and we're a bunch of uh, scraggly hippies with long hair. And it goes, so picture me with long hair, brown, parted in the middle, you know, headband, you know, with the peace sign. That was us at that time. And first shot of the game, uh, Middlebury takes and it goes in. It goes over my shoulder. It's a really good shot, but the goal ball went in the net. So I'm starting to think, okay, 
it's okay. It gets settled down. We'll be all set. And as a goalie, you know, understand how important it is to save for a shot. Absolutely. You know, and so the uh, second shot comes in and it goes five hole through my legs. And suddenly in the back of my mind, my monkey mind or my drunken monkey in the back <laughs> of my mind is starting to say things like, uh, you don't have it. You are an imposter. You know, this isn't going to work. And um, I said, I had to work myself through that. And fortunately, when Middlebury got the ball again, they had one of their players come directly down the field, suddenly dodged by all our def our defensemen and took a shot on me point blank. And I kind of guessed and I put my stick low and it went right into my stick. It looked really, really cool. Picked <laughs> it up, threw it out uh, for a clearing pass. And a couple of passes later, we scored the goal. It was two okay. to one. We're down. Then we went two to two. We tied it. We ended up, we ended up winning the game six to two. So for the next 30 shots, I just felt like the ball was a beach ball. Hmm. But that's really not the most important part of the story. The most important part of the story actually happened in the second period when Pfeiffer called timeout. He said, you know, timeout Middlebury, and the Middlebury players dutifully ran over to their bench. We went over to the Boston State bench. One of our players on the team, uh, Ronnie and Jemmy, and Ronnie had actually shaved half his beard off before the game pump us up. So we we – we, we, we're a little different, okay? And anyways, Ronnie runs to the Middlebury bench instead of our bench. And we're yelling over to him. And, and he goes in through the Middlebury huddle. The Middlebury plays, what are you doing here? He jumps on the back of the coach of the other team, of Pfeiffer's back. And, and, and we're going, oh, this is not going to end well. <laughs> he comes off the back of the coach. The coach turns around. Ronnie takes his helmet off, half a beard. They look up each other and then they both begin to have tears and these are literally tears of joy but why are they crying right. what's what's going on so the backstory when Pfeiffer called time out and Ronnie heard the voice the intonation and the inflection of Pfeiffer's voice the last time he had heard that specific voice was six years before in the jungles of Vietnam because Pfeiffer was his platoon commander and everything just stood still there it was the longest timeout of all time. You know, this wow. happened in 1975. It was a long time ago. But today, that ranks as one of the most important events in my coaching, playing, any type of career I had to do with sports. And I know, you know, some of the players that I knew from the other team, I became good friends with them and um, ended up coaching against some of them and stuff like that. And we'd always go back to that game. And I think that it was kind of a, a nexus for me or a genesis of why I wanted to look at and work that I do with Jaeger leadership, but also as a, as a coach with a variety of different teams over the years, is that talk a little bit about the why. And Drew Hyland, who's a sports philosopher who was at uh, Trinity College in Connecticut once said, uh, you know, sports can give you a feeling of completeness. And that's what it was you know, a feeling of completeness of everything was seemed to be aligned there. Now that can change on a dime. Mm -hmm. Beauty of sports, there's many times there's do-overs, but, but it really brought out and it brings out in other people the why we do what we do and why we enjoy sports so much. Right. And so you think that that experience helped you discover your why within sport as well of having witnessed that you know, incredibly tight bond between two people who literally went to war together. 
and, you know, then ended up later, you know, six years later in completely different circumstances on other sides of the, of the bear, but it had helped you to kind of realize that there is more to it than simply making saves or winning the game or more to it than just going out there and playing. And, and I know we're going to get into site cap coming in bigger, but how does that also then tie into the, the role that human psychology plays as human beings, as our wise, more so than just, you know, employees in an organization or athletes on a sports team or, you know, other examples like that? Well, in many ways, Braden, the, you know, our team collaborated with each other to play their team who collaborated with each other, but then we competed against them. But in many ways, it's, it's a big collaboration, Mm. you know, you know, it's like quantum theory, you know, it's just (laughs) stuff is happening in there and you're not always sure what's going to happen when you get out there. Right. Human element is so, so, so important there. And so when you look at these ideas of, of hope and, and, and confidence and resilience and optimism, those are just have really natural homes in sport. Mm. And in any organization too. So really then when you go through an experience like that, what that is allowing you to do is perhaps see the power of that human aspect. And then, you know, that ends up leading to what you've been working on for so many years and been so successful with is how can we then understand human nature and human psychology and how can we leverage that to bring out the best in people and then in our teams and in our organizations and, and downstream. Is that a fair, high, oh, very high level summary? Definitely a fair assessment of it. Okay. Yeah. The thing is that like with Fiverr, I, Fiverr, I became pretty good friends with him, mm-hmm. you know, just because of that game. And, and eventually after he con- stopped coaching, he ended up becoming an official and, and just, you know, when I see the Middlebury guys coaching venues and stuff like that, we'd go back and talk to Pfeiffer about Pfeiffer and, and Justin, he was the coach of the other team. Right. Okay. So I think this is a good time to make a little bit of a segue then, as I had mentioned in the outro or in the intro, sorry, you're coming out with a new book called The Coaching Zone. And I would love for you to give us a little bit of an overview, high level of the book. Obviously, we're going to dive into a bunch of different things. I know psych cap is an important theme that comes up. But I really like this segue right now because so much of what you talk about in the coaching zone, and I was very fortunate, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to read through it in advance, is this idea of understanding human nature so that how can we leverage that to understand ourselves? How can we understand the people that we're coaching? How can we understand the systems? And how can we leverage human nature and everything that matters most to become more effective? And so I'd love if you could just start off with a kind of a quick rundown of the coaching zone, what it's all about, and then we can really start to dive into some some key areas. Well, I, I was fascinated with the thought leader, Daniel Goleman's uh, Harvard Business School Review article back in 2013 called The Focus Leader. And he talked about to be a focus leader, you need to be able to shift between three different levels of attention. One is a focus on self, the second is a focus on others, and the third is a focus on the wider world. So what I... I found myself doing working with different coaches, teams, and uh, athletes within teams um, in all different sports is that there this this dynamic fits right in there too, and especially for for coaches where where coaches need to have a level of self awareness, okay, and self regulation. That's that focus on self, you know, kind of a meta approach to that. They also need right. to have a on their athletes, okay, individual athletes, and looking at the individual athletes, you know, as as each one being 
different to a certain degree. And third, having a view at the bigger picture of their teams and understanding what the team dances, okay? Because there's rhythm and flows and patterns. Athletes and teams are kind of orchestrated by the coach to kind of work in concert with each other. Yeah, so, so the book is about shifting between those three different areas. You know, first of all, talking about coaching self-awareness, second about leading and empowering others. You know, it, it goes to that, you know, how well does a coach provide direction, but how well does the coach actually empower the athlete and how do they hit the sweet spot with that? And then looking at the team from a standpoint of taking a look at the individual and saying that the individual is important, but the team is also very, very important. Uh, many people, you know, you know, hear the idiom, it's uh, the cliche, there's, there's no I in team. Well, there is an I in team. There is the individual who develops his or her own skills over time that contributes to the team development in there. And it's, it's hitting the sweet spot there, too. And many times when you over-focus on one to the neglect of the other, that becomes an issue. Um, with that there, but also looking at teams with accountability and support and the development of, 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 uh, of culture and looking at culture, you know, whether it's a kind of culture that creates, collaborates, uh, talks about control or competing. And this is the work that's been done by Kim Cameron and Bob Quinn from the University of Michigan in their competing values framework. So a lot of the things that I take in the book are not necessarily going from the locker room up to the boardroom. It's actually strategies that are used in the boardroom now that can actually now be used. And, and many times coaches are using that without even knowing it. And they talk about those four different culture drivers. You know that. So if you think of a coach who, who, who creates and, and they're innovative and you know, they don't, you know, failure is a chance to grow, to be in a growth mindset. But that, that, that another coach will, um, you know, will be out there in, in collaborating, will maybe do the creation, but collaborating the connection, connecting the dots between each of the players. The third is control, paying attention to the little things, okay, those dynamics. And the fourth is compete, compete against oneself and the team against itself and against their competition. So it looks at a results-oriented achievement. And some some coaches and Team cultures actually have all four of those working. Some may have three out of the four working. And it's what is the best, you know, set of culture drivers for a team to, to really flourish in a successful, conducive environment. Right. And obviously for every team and every situation, it could be a little bit different, right? Like you said, you sure. have to really customize and adapt to what maybe your specific needs are. And you know, when you're describing that, I keep thinking of this very complex system. You know, it's it's easy, I think, for a lot of people to be quarterback coaches or to, you know, be at home watching the big game and be like, oh, well, that was a bad decision. Why did they do that? But it's, you know, it's not just X's and O's. I mean, it is incredibly complex. And like you said, and as we go back into psych cap, psychological capital, you are leading people, you are empowering people, and you have to lead yourself. I mean, there are so many, so many aspects of this. It's I, I, when I was listening to you thinking about that, the thing that came to my mind was it, in many ways it you were describing how I like to look at the human body. You know, it's not enough to just look at your nutrition or just your sleep or just, right, you know, your right. cardiovascular system or just your nervous system. I mean, everything works 
together in this really complicated process. And you really need to try and take a holistic approach to how can we optimize the functionality of everything. So in your time working with a lot of different leaders through sports and in different industries as well, do you find that when we, if we look at those three categories, the self leading others, and then also um, leading the, the, like the world or the greater picture, do you find that there is one of those three domains that perhaps coaches or leaders tend to lack the most of, or is, is really urgent, or do you think it's a pretty even balance between all three sometimes are hit or miss depending on who you're working with? I, I, I believe, Braden, that self-awareness and self-regulation, that first focus on self is, is critical mm. because uh, by not having that understanding of oneself in there and one's own stories and motives, um, then it becomes more difficult to lead and empower others. Right. Okay. And to understand the full team dance, because sometimes, sometimes the self can get in the way of that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important. That's why I, I talk about this in the, in the, in the first part of the book, uh, so that coaches can get that grounding there, you know, and I always think of somebody going to read the book and they're going to just skip through that and go straight <laughs> to the strategies. But I, I, I kind of emphasize that that's really important to do is to understand their strengths as well as their blind spots and shortcomings, mm-hmm. understanding their story, you know, uh, you know, that, you know, what are, the, what are the actions and the insights from their stories that they've had in their coaching lives? Right. You know, I mean, for me, it was when I was 11 years old running a road race on July 4th, and uh, I had been running, and it was a three-mile race. I had never run, actually ran three miles before. My father took me down to the starting line, and we, we were uh, preceding the, uh, the parade that was going to come behind us during the day. Somewhere on the, the running course, there's parade route just, you know, just to cheer, cheer on down the road. And I uh, got to the, you know, got to, you know, sign in. And I saw everybody else was 16 years older, up to mm-hmm. 40. And suddenly I was a fish out of water. I'm 11 years old. I'm this little kid. And I'm saying like, well, this is wrong. This is not right. And I could feel my, my, my anxiety coming on. And I looked over at my father and. My father looked at me and he gave me a smile. And all that the smile said was, you're okay. Mm. You can do it. You don't have to do it. You got it. And that kind of settled me at that time. And so the the gun went off. The race went off. I finished dead last. The parade was caught up to me. But the bottom line is I remember that as if it was yesterday. Right. You know, just because it allowed for me to understand, to work through that with some of the psychological capital pieces. And then from that time, working with other people, you know, uh, working with other coaches to getting them to come to an understanding of where they are. I remember working with a division one swim coach who at times is very, very, really, really speaks his mind to the team, which is great. And it allows for kind of a free flow dynamic but at times uh, really needed to, 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 to be clo- more close up to athletes during, during their meets because in many ways um, he was finding that he was kind of like so focused on what's next and making sure these other events are happening and stuff like that. He wasn't giving feedback to swimmers pre-race and post-race. And literally uh, the mantra he ended up having was, was uh, step forward, okay, step forward. Uh, to make sure that he's addressing the athlete there. So this took a, a good amount of self-awareness 
for him to work through, but it increased his capacity as a head coach and how the athletes, the swimmers and divers respond to him in that way. So I think that's critical, self-awareness. Yeah, I, I love that. I think it's 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 so important in, in everything you want to look at. I mean, if you don't have your own house in order, it's pretty hard to have other people's houses in order, right? And just for the people that are listening, and especially all the coaches, I mean, this this book can be applicable beyond coaches. You don't have to be a coach to you know take a look at your sure, book and sure, give it a read, yeah. obviously. Yeah. But you know, you know, as I was going through, you have a ton of anecdotes. You have a ton of case studies with different coaches who are highly successful, who've had a lot of experience. You share your own personal stories as well as your co-author. You know, there's frameworks, there's exercises. So just so people know, not only is this going to help, you know, educate you and help you think about things differently, but in many ways, it's it's also serves as a bit of a workbook and an exercise book where you can work through individually and you can sit down and reflect, where are my weaknesses? Where are my strengths? What is working? What is not working? And it kind of gives you that, you know, tangible, practical application to say, how do I take this into my life, into my coaching or my leadership and how can I improve it? So I think that's wonderful. And, and I'll give you a chance at the end to, to talk more about, you know, how it can benefit sure, people, but sure. uh, you brought up again, psychological capital. We brought it up at the start. I'd love for you, because this really underpins everything. And for example, you're talking about the story of running the marathon. That was kind of when it just, those elements of psycho, psychological capital really click for you. And you talked about hero uh, is the, the, acronym. So hope, efficacy, or confidence, and then resilience and optimism. I would love if you don't mind, just elaborate a little bit more on SiteCap, why it's so important. And maybe if you have any other examples, you know, that, that come to mind, just some way to really help build for everyone listening, why exactly that matters and, and what you mean by this. Well, many times people will take the four components of, of SiteCap, um, hope, confidence, or efficacy, resilience, and optimism, and actually bunch them all together. Hmm. Okay. What I try to do is is take them and show them where they have their own natural foundation there. So coaches can see where their own psychological capital is in each of those components. Now, of course, to have those collected together is the best. Where Mm -hmm. when when leaders, athletes, and collectively among a team have have psychap, then having all four of those components is 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 basically what we try to hope for and look for. But if you're looking at hope, hope is about three components. It's about setting goals, realistic goals. It's about finding pathways to those goals because if one way gets stuck, you have another direction to go. Okay. And, and an example of this is a um, high school basketball coach that, that, I, uh, that I've, I've, I've worked with before who basically, you know, is able to, you know, shift with the goals mid, midstream in a game. Okay, and and is able to is able to find different pathways to get to the goal. And he, the third part of that, besides goal setting pathways, is agency. That you have the capacity to be able to make this happen, which bleeds nicely into confidence. Okay, and, and uh, you know when I think about confidence, I, I think about Austin Soroic, who was uh, your junior year was was the uh he was the captain senior captain he was a junior and senior captain at norwich and I, and one of the things about austin i have psychap based on one is that his ability to shift directions uh, after norwich had won 18 straight regular season championships this year Braden, was when um you weren't going to do that uh, mm-hmm. you know 
several other teams, uh, Babson and I believe UMass Boston, uh, were going to probably come in first and second. Yeah, that's correct. I'm pretty sure uh, UMass Boston was first, Babson was second, and we finished third. Yeah, and it was going to be really hard with the amount of games left to make that shift there. Mm-hmm. And, and Austin kind of contacted me. You know, we got on a Zoom call, even way back then, on a Zoom mm-hmm. call back in right. <laughs> And, uh, and, and talking a little bit about, you know, what the deal was and how he was saying that people, you know, around the uh, campus were saying, you know, what's wrong? Uh, how can you fix it? Austin's feeling responsible as a, as a, um, as a captain, but we did some work online with the team, but Austin was able through his own leadership saying, Hey, we, you know, let's see how we can, you know, finish off the season. And you end up beating those teams, you know, and, you know, finishing up the season, even though you still ended up third regulars and going into the playoffs. But his capacity to do that and be able to echo that to the other players was really, really important. The same thing, he had confidence where he was able to take mastery experiences that he had had in leadership and on the ice to get there, you know, and he was able to, you know, getting getting feedback from coaches and being able to be ready for games allowed him to have that confidence and basically the resilience, you know, when, when the rubber met the road and there was adversity, he was able to kind of stay right through that. And one of the things that I noticed when I worked in the team with the team person in the um, 16, 17 season was that Austin commanded a deep amount of respect Mm. because of his hope, his, his confidence, but also being optimistic where he was able to take an interpretive latitude of where things were and having leniency for the past. This is where we were in the first part of the season. This is how we can finish our season off. And where, what are our opportunities for the future? Well, as you know, your opportunities for the future is that you, you folks put together an amazing season in 2016, 2017, and won the Division Three men's national um, championship there. Because mm-hmm. you put those all together. And it was, it was his his capacities to show his own psychap that helped to develop the team psychap. Okay. That helped to develop everybody. So that, 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 that you, you folks, you, you, the members of your team that year were able to put things together had pathways to your goals. You were confident. Okay. And nothing got you folks down. You were able to work through adversity fine. And you, you had an incredible amount of optimism. Mm-hmm. It was almost if you had, pictured yourself in championship rounds um, way before it even happened. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty cool. And that's how, that's how those are examples of how, how PSYCAP can come alive. They're actually breaking those down in four different areas at the coaching level, at the uh, athlete level, and at the team level. Yeah, no, I, I love that to just, you know, reliving kind of that story in that time frame uh, to hear it from your perspective, a different perspective is awesome, but also to put it in the context of, you know, hero, hope, efficacy, resilience, and optimism. And, you know, first of all, Austin is an incredible guy and you're hundred percent right that everyone had the utmost respect for him. And I mean, I've always looked up to him as, as someone that I've always admired, not just as an athlete, but as a person and everything he does, whether it was <laughs> right. seeing the way he worked in, uh, in New York finance or whether it was, you know, at school or it was in the gym, you know, the guy was incredible, but you know, it's funny, you talked about having those four pieces. And if, if I were to go and break this down, because you're exactly right. I think we it was 18 straight years. We had won our conference cha- our regular season conference championship every year. And that year, which was my sophomore year, we didn't win it. We ended up finishing third, like you had mentioned. And 
you know, it was definitely a different vibe in the room compared to the other three years, for sure. Definitely compared to the next year. And I look back at hope and, you know, hope was there hope there. There probably was in bits and pieces, maybe not as, as strong as it had been. Confidence definitely wasn't the same as other years because, you know, we were losing games and we did have our share of struggles and we did have a young team and, you know, it wasn't the same. And so, you know, from a player on the inside, it's hard to articulate it. It's harder to be aware of it when you're in the moment. But when you look back in hindsight, you know, definitely were we as confident as we had been in other situations? No. So we were probably missing that element. Resilience is an interesting one. It's tougher to go back in time because it's been so long now, but you know, it, it didn't seem, it wasn't the same where, you know, no matter what we're hundred percent, like it did seem things were a little bit of whack and, and then obviously optimism, it kind of, you could see that, okay, is this the end? Like, is the ship going down? And you just, you know, you hear all the voices, you know, around the campus and everyone like, what's wrong? Like you guys have won a conference 18 straight years. Like, why are you in third place? Like heaven forbid, you know, a team's in third place of a conference of 10 teams or anything. But like you said that next year, you know, we went through major learning, major growth. We had the same leadership group because we only had one senior graduate that year before. So right. you know, with Austin, yeah, exactly. and the same older guys. And then, you know, we had a few new players come in, but it was largely the same team. Like there wasn't any major, major changes, but when we came back and I, I remember clearly uh, a, a good little story from that year that we won it. So we ended up finishing the year, I think 27, one and three. So we only had one loss the entire season and it was in Skidmore and it was a game in overtime. And I remember when we got back into the room after there wasn't a whole lot of dialogue, but it was pretty clear that that's it. Like this is the end. Cause we knew we had a good team. We knew we were there. And for Austin in that senior class, this was their senior year. So, you know, we had the, this year was a redo after last year. And I remember just that feeling in that room after that game thinking, I don't think I'd ever experienced in my life a hero elements thinking about the hope, like, okay, this is it. Like, we're going to win this. This is we're, this is not going to happen again. Just the supreme confidence that every single night we were going to dominate and the resilience to push back, you know, after what happened the year before and after losing that game and just the optimism. When you look at those four elements, I have never been a part of a team that has been so dialed in. And after that loss in Skidmore, we were unbeaten the last 25 games of the year straight until the national championship. And we just, it, you know, obviously we had a few ties in there and there's some phenomenal competition, but in many ways, I remember every single game, whether I was playing or not, no matter who was playing, no matter where, whether on the road, at home, any team, we knew we were going to win. We knew we were the best team in the country. And at, you know, you just, the way you describe each of those four elements one by one, I think it's a perfect example. So I, I appreciate you letting me le relive that a little bit. I'm getting a little, sure. uh, little yeah, well, that's great. Here, well, that's part of your story, Braden. It leads and helps you as a leader today. Right, exactly. <laughs> wow, you really got me going here. But I, I did want to move on to the next idea. And one of the concepts that are super, super important in your book is the idea of polarity thinking. So understanding that there are different polarities, um, and, and you list a bunch of them, so I can let you talk about that a little bit. But I think it's something that I would love for you to talk about and explain to people because when we and I know for myself in my own life, trying to self-regulate, when do I need to do more of one thing or pull back on another thing? And how do you find that balance? And this is where polarity thinking really comes in. And you obviously have a lot of academic background as well. So I'd love for you to take some time to talk about polarity thinking. Well, a polarity is this, an independent pair. And these could be values or strategic objectives. Uh, like uh, people have you know, heard of you know, yin-yang, light-dark. Basically, polarities, uh, typical examples would be like if you were to kind of uh, run a marathon, okay, and uh, running a marathon, you know, uh, is a lot of activity and training for that, but also a lot of rest so you don't overtrain. And it's, as you said, it's like hitting the sweet spot with that. Mm. 
you train just enough and you're getting enough rest, you reach uh, a point where you're probably going to re hopefully realize that goal if you have the capacity to do that. But if you overfocus on one area, one pull to the neglect of the other, then that becomes a problem. Okay, and basically it's about being able to dynamically balance that. You know, if you think about uh, polarities today outside of the, you know, athletic arena, you think about politics and you think about even, even you know, even in political culture now in the United States, you know, take liberals and conservatives and trying to meet halfway there, you know, they call across the aisle is literally trying to dynamically balance that. You may always have an, a focus a little bit more on one pole than the other, okay? But it's your ability to know when you're going too far with one thing, how do you actually take that energy and balance that with the other energy in there, mm -hmm. you know? And so some, some typical examples, you know, another example is you know, your inhale and your exhale. You know, you can't have one without the other. Right. You know, I just, well, I, I just, I, you know, I, 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 I want to focus on my, my inhale. Well, you have to focus on your exhale. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a variety of different polarities that I see in sport. When I work with teams, I, I bring these up all the time and literally have the athletes on teams get together in small groups and identify. For example, I was, you know, working with uh, Norwich uh, men's lacrosse last year and uh, uh, Norwich men's lacrosse, women's hockey, and women's softball last a year ago, January. Now, unfortunately, there's their seasons were cut short, mm -hmm. but in the preparation for that, basically they, they worked on uh, a variety of different polarities that actually put together their strategic objectives for their team. So for uh, one example in there, and, and coaches can see this too, is, 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 is one uh, polarity is called confidence and humility. Okay. Um, you know, for a coach, it's important to be confident. Okay. And there's an upside to being confident. Also an upside to, to showing humility there. And if you overfocus on showing confidence, the lack of humility, then players and athletes will see you as being arrogant. Okay? If you if you and so that's the downside. If you overfocus on humility to the neglect of confidence, there may be a level of meekness there. So it's getting the right balance that you have in there. Okay? Mm -hmm which is really, really important. A, a, a second one is um, automatic and reflective thinking. This is really interesting um, for players and coaches where our automatic thinking is around 80% of, of our day, day's focus on different things. We do things automatically. They're habituated. It's also called system one thinking, okay? So for athletes, you really want to have – athletes being in system one thinking out there as a goalie you don't want to think too much about your next save okay you just follow exactly. the puck because if yeah. you overthink you go into system two which is more deliberate and stuff like that but then if you're doing that you're not ready to actually make the save yeah getting to that sweet spot with that you know uh and and so so for coaches to be able to balance in their lives athletes to be able to balance in, in their lives so so there's times during practice to get more into system two thinking or reflective right. thinking. So you're really looking through new ways of doing things, okay? And then system one thinking is once you get that down, you can actually do it habitually where you're not even thinking about it at all. It becomes, it becomes almost unconscious. Mm -hmm. 
unfortunately, sometimes people, the coaches and athletes may have developed some bad habits where when they're in system one, they're doing things that aren't working. Okay. You know, I think of a, of a, of a coach who told me about a high school coach, uh, hockey coach about one of his athletes who, who, you know, took four penalties in a game. And because, you know, just it wasn't able to control himself in certain types of situations. So they need to kind of go back to the drawing board and do some system two work and to kind of preface those situations and where those situations come up, where that athlete, that player gets in trouble with getting the penalties and to practice that through. You know, it reminds me of a situation that I had once when I was coaching at the Culver Academies and my claim to fame at Culver is that I coached them from zero, uh, 01 to 04. We won a couple state championships, which was exciting. But then we brought in a new coach afterwards, and I took a more of a minor role as an assistant coach with a team. And the team got really good when that happened. I mean, uh-huh. really good. And today, they're, they're a national uh, high school power. Um, but well, anyways, there's one of our players on the team at a – is he at a, 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 where his stick was too short. You have to have at least a 40-inch stick. Uh, length of your stick or it's illegal and uh, he was given a three-minute unreleasable penalty which that means is that that for the next three minutes the other team has a has an advantage by one player and has a man advantage and even if they do score you don't get the player back for three minutes right so let's say um, in the power play the man up in 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 in, in lacrosse can be pretty pretty deadly at times so anyways, I saw that player look over at me and looked at me with incredible fear as if I was about to, to just to lay right into him. And I caught myself, you know, as I could feel my blood boil, because we had talked about this, take care of your equipment, okay? And uh, I said, I, and he came over and I go, John, okay, okay, here's the deal, okay? You know, you made a mistake. I understand that. It wasn't good. It's a tough, tough time to do that. But what I want you to do is to go into the penalty box, spend the first 30 seconds thinking about what happened, then spend the two and a half, other two and a half minutes getting ready to get back out on that field with a new stick because I need you out there. Mm-hmm. I need you out there. So it allowed for me, by practicing enough of this in system two thinking, that I was able to respond to him without a knee-jerk reaction. Mm. However, at times, people, players, and uh, coaches will respond with knee-jerk reactions if they're in HALTS, which is H-A-L-T-S. That's an acronym that stands for Mm. being hungry, angry, lonely, tired, stressed out. Okay? Okay. And when we get in those modes, we tend to, we tend to, uh, you know, uh, we tend to act in system one. And if it's the action that needs to happen, that, that's good. But if it's something that we haven't worked through, then that's kind of an issue. So, so it's hitting that sweet spot with that, you know, being able to uh, not overfocus on one to the other, depending on where you are. Yeah. The third one that I, I see a lot with coaches is providing direction and empowering athletes. And, and, and so coaches can provide direction. They can find, and depending on the level and age, appropriateness of the athletes and the teams, how much the coach provides direction is important. With kind of a, an elite team, there may be less direction provided and more empowering. For, for, a, uh, for a, um, uh, a youth team, 
of an under 11 or an U12 team, there may be a more, more providing direction there. But it's also hitting that sweet spot with being able to empower the athlete by giving them some autonomy, some self-directedness, you know, giving them voice and choice. So that becomes a dynamic balance. That, And in the book, we have a variety of polarity maps and exercises that the coaches actually can go through to actually see where they fit in there and to develop action steps to move forward out of that. So we kind of break it down, getting coaches to do that. The other one that I, that I think is most so, so important is individual and team. As I said before, there's, there is an I in team. It's just when, you know, if you think about focusing on the individual, when an indi- you know, when you have the individual focus, they're focusing on getting better, doing the things that they do well, being able to self-evaluate, et cetera. Being on a team, of course, brings in so many things, doing being on something larger than yourself, uh, being part of a cohesive unit that, that, uh, that, that you become a major part of that. You overfocus on being that individual to the neglect of the team, then you're going to be considered to be selfish. Focusing on team to the neglect of the individual, okay, and this doesn't happen that often, but there's always a point where sometimes the team becomes so important that an athlete could get lost in there and not perform as well. And we've seen this before where some athletes have wanted to make sure that they pass the puck or pass the ball where they should have taken it themselves. You know, that's the importance of dynamically balancing that. So this book deals a lot with, with polarity thinking, which has been used a lot in, in, in industry and business, not as much in sports. And so what I'm excited about is to share this with a lot of coaches to understand that and to actually they'll begin to see that they actually use polarities. They may call them something different, you know, healthy tensions or paradoxes, mm. but they can see ways and they can learn ways where they can, how they can make those shifts and how their actual players can and actually do polarity thinking and work on the strategic objectives for the team for that year. Yeah, I, I really like that. When I was reading through the book about the the many different examples, obviously you went through a few of them of the polarity thinking, it really kind of got me thinking the idea of you don't want to necessarily become rigid in one way because sports and life is too dynamic and too complex. So what you're really training yourself to do by being, first of all, you know, cognizant of the polarities and then being able to reflect and evaluate where you're at, but you're becoming adaptable to situations so that you can be versatile and say, you know, I don't have to be this coach archetype all the time because maybe that isn't optimal for me to get the most out of this player or in this situation. And so how can I become the best coach in all situations and how can I constantly adapt so that whatever adversity, whatever challenge, whatever circumstance is going on, I can get the best out of myself, my team and individually and then collectively. I think it's just uh, an incredible way of, of looking at it perhaps a little bit differently than what is maybe conventional. Right. It's about both and thinking. Now there's either or thinking who a coach may play, what you had for lunch. That's an either or decision. And there are a lot of either or decisions in, in coaching, but both and is because we're dealing with human dynamics and human behavior. There's always a shift. There's a shift in the team every year. Okay, right. the you are on that finished in 16 is the different than 17. Right. Okay. Even though you only had a difference in, uh, you know, you brought in, you know, new first year players and you only graduated one other player. It's a different year. It's a different time, and and the and the balance is different. So you have to look at things a little bit differently at that moment. Right. 
And that obviously entails a lot of sight cap when you're trying to navigate those polarities because it is that human nature, which is a little bit more complex and, and perhaps uh, deeper than a simple either or, you know, for example, what am I eating for lunch? I mean, there's, there's a necessarily a huge amount of hero elements, at least in, in my daily decisions of what I'm going to eat for lunch. But, you know, as opposed to, okay, if I'm looking at a polarity, for example, I love my favorite one that you talked about was automatic versus reflective thinking that Daniel Kahneman, you know, system one, system two, I mean, trying to turn on from being, you want to be automated, you want to be dialed in, you want to be quick, but then you also have to know when do I pause? When do I reflect? When am I deliberately analyzing and critiquing my own performance and that of others? And how do I learn and grow? It's it's just such a interesting dynamic. I, I love hearing, hearing you talk about this and because you're, you're pulling so many aspects, you're pulling aspects of experiential being a coach and a player. And you're mm-hmm. talking about the aspects of leadership and, you know, values and how that drives, but then you're also talking about psychology. And I mean, there's so many elements that come together. It's such a wonderful uh, kind of stir fry of information. And mm-hmm. speaking of values, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. And one of the things that I came across in your book was the idea of how values drive behavior, which is something I've seen a lot with, for example, uh, Simon Sinek and start with why, which is, is a terrific read that I love that. And, you know, you talked about a terrific example. I'd love for you to share a little story with uh, Travis Roy as well, who's a phenomenally inspiring individual. And sure. just the idea of the polarity, I guess you could look at in many ways of having values and having a greater purpose statement on one end of the spectrum. And then perhaps the other end is what is your deeper fear and, and trying to learn about yourself and how that drives you in a direction, whether that's as a coach or it could be anything in life. Sure. Well, the greater purpose statement is when you're living in both the upsides of the polarities. If you're living in individual and team and that's dynamically being balanced, the greater purpose statement might be we all thrive Mm. individually and collectively. The deeper fear, okay, which is the opposite end of the spectrum, as you say, Braden, is when you're living in the downsides. If there's too much of an overfocus on the individual and, uh, and there was too much focus on the team, okay, things probably things aren't going that well for the team that's happening, okay? Um, and, and one, one uh, deeper fear might be, and it's a provocative term, we don't survive. Mm. And, and the goal is in polarity thinking is to, is to really look at these provocative greater purpose and deeper fear statements out there that, 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 that come alive to show, you know, what you value as, as the greater purpose and what, what's the worst case scenario that can happen if you're living, you're living in the downside of both. And, and you know, as you bring up the term, you know, talking about values and what people believe that are things that are important to them, that's so important, you know, with teams, with their, their core values. And I know core values is a term that's used all the time and, in sports and schools and industry business. Uh, but the thing is, those become anchors, you know, and what those core values are, what are the behavioral anchors of those values of how we live are the mission of our organization. That's really, really important. It's a contract that's made up. And it gets back to what you were saying that Simon Sinek talks about the why that leads the what and the how. And I think of, of Travis Roy and Travis Roy was a, um, uh, a collegiate hockey player, D1 at Boston University, I believe, back in around 1995. I was teaching at BU at the time. And, and basically, Travis was in a, in a catastrophic, uh, had a catastrophic injury in his first 11 seconds of his first college game, where we were skating into the dasher boards and, uh, 
he went to check a player and is actually had went into the dashboard and, and caused him to become a, a, a um, quadriplegic where he had very little use of one of his hands. And uh, um, one of the things that was amazing about, about Travis is his ability to be resilient. You talk about uh, psychological capital. Um, uh, he was able to actually work through after coming out of out of the hospital and in, in in therapy and stuff like that. Actually, was able to complete and finish his degree, his bachelor's at BU, and then actually uh, began the Travis Roy Foundation. Worked worked with you know individuals uh, who had similar types of, of of injuries or in typical types of situations and. Um, and so Travis, that what really struck me in one of the videos about him, first 20 years of my life, I had a passion, which was hockey. And for the next 20 years, I had a purpose, which was his foundation. And that's his, and unfortunately, Travis died recently, uh, you know, in, in, in his 40s, which is just amazing that he was, he was able to, to not survive, but flourish, uh -huh. that we have a passion that energy, that emotion that goes into something, but we also have a purpose, uh -huh. okay, of looking at something larger than self. And then actually, how do we balance our passion and purpose in the things that we do, in the way that we do them? Yeah, that's, it's such a powerful story every time, you know, I hear it or I read about it and it's incredibly sure. inspiring. And, you know, having been a hockey player and been in the Northeast for a long period of time. Obviously, I've been sure. familiar about exactly. the Travis Roy Foundation for a long time, but I think that is super powerful. And, you know, it even gets me thinking today. I mean, I've started to, I, I don't want to ever say that I'm comparable to, you know, someone as inspiring as Travis Roy, but I remember, you know, at the same time when I was still playing hockey, so going up to a year ago, you know, I had a passion. I was in the same thing. I, I don't know if I really had a greater purpose other than I loved the game and I loved playing, but what was the bigger picture? What was I really doing to, you know, transform and serve other people and make the world a better place? I, I don't think I had that. I think that was missing, you know, and I've been trying to find my purpose and a deeper meaning for what my life is about and how I can contribute to people and what my core values are, you know, like going back to Simon Sinek, start with why, what are your core values? Why does it matter? And then how do you drive that out? I think it's really important for people to take the time to, consider that in their own life and you know, what are your passions and what are your purposes? What are your whys and, and how do you get there? And um, it's, it's just incredibly inspiring every time. So I'm really glad you touched on that because I think that matters in, in every context, whether you're a player or you're a coach, you're leading an organization or uh, you're trying to decide what you want for lunch that day. I mean, you know, understanding yeah. values is, is critical to everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's okay to have a, you know, it's okay to have purpose in hockey too. Mm. It's not, but it has to be outside of that. It, it, it can be any place, you know, uh, that, but, but, but to show that those are two dynamic pieces helps to, for people to be fully functioning. And I think it's really essential and critical for coaches to be aware of what their passion is okay, and what their purpose is and what they do. Right. Okay. So to kind of keep this going a little bit, I want to talk a little bit more specific about actually coaching and how, and some examples of some coaches that are fantastic. And in your book, you pull on a ton of different coaches who are doing some amazing things and you have some great quotes. And the first person I want to talk about is she, she came up a lot in the book. Her name is Catherine DeLorenzo. I, hopefully I said that right. She's the women's field hockey coach at Middlebury. And I just want to quickly read a few of her quotes. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about her because I was blown away by all of her stuff. So first of all, the first quote that I really loved 
I want them to really feel that they matter to each other. They feel relevant. And so this is the idea of talking about relevancy and appraisal within players and how you can, in many ways, you're empowering your players. The second quote that I really loved and, and kind of builds off that as well. She says, when you feel known, you feel relevant. When you feel relevant, you're motivated to contribute. And I love that because it's, it really just hits home with people, right? That's really what coaching and what leadership is about is you are trying to empower someone to take their own initiative and then to be their best version. You're not telling them to do something, you're enabling them. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about Catherine, because obviously I, I don't know her personally, but uh, blown away by all the, the excerpts and, and stories and examples and quotes you have in the book. So I'd love for you to just start off with her. Well, Catherine in her tenure as Middlebury's uh, field hockey coach has had a, you know, the one uh, a multiple national uh, the division three national championships in field hockey. And, and, uh, but one of the things that really struck me in my interview with her, and I believe the interview was probably spent, we probably spent 90 minutes mm. and I taped her on this to, to, and I was just, I was just really kind of blown away by her thoughtfulness about the power of empowering her athletes mm. and that, that, that to get them to feel relevant. And when she talks about getting to have them known, it's not knowing, you know, what you're, uh, where you, you know, where you're from, what your astrological sign and what your major is. It's really having players to get to know each other. Mm. And that is almost a criteria. It is a criteria for being on being part of that team. So, so in many ways, there's not a nanosecond of doubt when it comes to whether an athlete's going to pass the ball or not, because because the the athletes know each other so well, they know each other's moves out there, they know how each other thinks. Mm. Thing is that to get known is to feel relevant, okay? That they matter to the situation, and the term matter, I believe, is so so important. Um, mm. And Catherine talks a lot about what she calls the scope of contribution. And what is the athlete's scope of contribution? I remember on uh, part of the interview, and I put this in the book, where she had one athlete who, who really basically didn't see the time very much, maybe a couple minutes a year on the field, right. but is so valuable in practice and other things going on with the team that her scope of contribution is really powerful towards that. So she may not have that skill level to be playing a lot there is these other things. And she said to me, you could talk to this young woman and she would tell her that, tell her that this is my scope of contribution. I love this team. I love being part of it. Mm. And, um, you know, of course people want to get playing time. Okay. But the thing is that, that she has set this up in such a way that, that the scope of contribution is understood by each one of her athletes, mm. you know, and then also part of feeling relevant is that if it's at halftime, break, uh, and something isn't going well, she'll ask the players, what do you think's going on here? And so one player would say to her, you know, I think when we tried this against Bates, it, it kind of worked. Maybe we should try this again. She goes, that's a really good idea. Hmm. You know, let's go with that. And imagine how that may, allows for a player to feel. Right, right. So, so there's no longer, you know, you know there's no there's power differential. You know, with coach and player in this situation is, is almost non-existent. She's still the coach. They're still the athletes, the players. Okay? But the bottom line is they, they, feel, they feel relevant. They feel that they matter. Uh. It's, that's, you know, and I talk about this in, in Chapter 5 of the book and called Cultivating Connections. I, 
I use the, I use the term now, I didn't have it in the book called EMT. So not emergency medical technician, but empathy, mattering, and trust. Mm. Okay, as three critical pieces there, okay, that are, are happening with her teams year in, year out. Right. You know? You know, and I tell you, and she had talked to me about coming to work with her team. And it's about working with her team. It's not about trying to get an extra win in there. It's about building them and helping them grow as human beings. That's amazing. And I, I love so much the idea of matter. And this brings me to the next person, which is the Norwich University men's lacrosse coach, Neil Anderson, who I've actually built up a relationship with recently. And I've been on the phone with him many times. And I love his approach to coaching and to the world and to life. And I think he is a brilliant, brilliant mind. And one thing that we spent a lot of time talking about together is the concept of the human ego and how do we then transcend that? How do we understand people and build relationships and use tactical empathy, for example, like Chris Boss's work and understand people to empower them. And one thing that he has said to me repeatedly, so this may not be an exact quote, but I'm pretty sure I've heard him say this repeatedly is that each person has an underlying desire to be appreciated and understood. In other words, they want to feel like they matter, which is exactly then what Catherine DiLorenzo was doing. And, you know, I, I know he has worked really hard to incorporate that into his coaching and his team's had a ton of success. And I know guys that have played for him on the Norwich lacrosse team as well that absolutely love him as a coach. And so you've had a chance to talk with him as well. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about what you think makes him such a, a great coach and having so much success and the way that he pulls aspects of psychological capital and, you know, everything that the coaching zone is all about into what he does. Well, I remember in, uh, in January of 2020, kind of coming over, you know, coming from being in Middlebury and getting coming over to Norwich, you know, I worked with the Middlebury, some Middlebury teams and came and, you know, and it was kind of got there early. So we had this three hour piece of time before I was going to work with the team, uh, the Norwich, uh, men's lacrosse team. And, uh, and I just sat down and went to school and just listened to him talk about his thought process with tactical empathy, uh, Chris Bosworth, and, and other aspects of really understanding and appreciating athletes. And, and it, it was just really, really powerful. It's just like, yeah, yeah, that's it. And that's why they, they love him and they love playing. They're similar to Catherine DiLorenzo at Middlebury, you know, and that he, he does a really good job at effectively challenging his athletes day by day where he'll try something else. He'll, him and his, and his fellow coach will, will kind of just step back and just let some things happen. Mm-hmm. Even though the player may want some feedback right away, and Neil might say, hey, let's go try it out, see how it works. Yeah. Athlete might say, well, well what's, what's, how do, what's the answer? To this? We'll try it out and see how it works. So he gets the athletes to fish for themselves. Right. Okay? And he uses his, the feedback when it's most appropriate at the right time. So he's really good at giving um, – Three types of feedback, which is uh, um, I take from the work that Stone and Heen have done in their book, Thanks for the Feedback. He gives, you know, like appreciation feedback, giving thanks, okay, for things, you know, recognizing athletes. But he's also really good at skill improvement or coaching feedback, the second type of feedback mm-hmm. there too. And the third is that he's really good at evaluation feedback. So when, you know, you, you know, you were successful in 60% of those clears as a team or, you know, you know, 70% of face-offs. That's evaluation feedback. It's critical in giving feedback to other people, especially if it's critical feedback, that it's 
it's done at the right time for the right person for the right reason. Right. It's got to be the right type of feedback. Or some people are given evaluative feedback and they really need coaching feedback there. Uh, Neil is, is amazing with that, you know, to allow for that to, to happen. You know, he understands that, you know, uh, and brings that out in his players and, in, you know, everything that he does with them. So he lets them to try to figure out new ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that does that, that, that becomes contagious with some of the other players on the team. I also love the way he likes to use open-ended questions and he, he kind of prompts you to come up with your solutions. And I know one example that he was, he loves talking about what every time that I've talked to him is um, Stephen Kotler's work on flow state and the idea of trying to do the impossible. I know Stephen Kotler's come out with a new book about the art of impossible. And he loves the way to frame questions so that the players can take initiative. So for example, let's say there was a practice, you know, and it, they had, it was alumni weekend or something and, you know, they had to go to drill right after or they had morning class and X, Y, and Z and, you know, all these things going on and, or, you know, it was bad weather or whatever. And instead of being, okay, guys, you know, let's, let's try and have a really good practice today. You know, the way he would phrase that type of statement was, is it impossible for us to have our best practice of the year today? And I remember the first time I heard him say something like that, it's like, Hmm, no, I guess not. And then, you know, it kind of gets you thinking in a different way. And he's just, he's very tactical, uh, with his language. And I, I think it's, it's wonderful to listen to him. So I, I had the same experience. The first time I talked with him, we had, I think we'd planned for maybe just an hour on zoom and uh, it ended up going much longer than that before we had to finally shut it down, you know, but it's, sure, he's, exactly. he's the guy you could talk about for a long period of time. So <laughs> I, I love that you, you included him in the book as well. Cause I think his work is awesome. Now in, for the sake of time, I want to skip ahead a little bit. Uh, and I want to quickly talk about 360 degree strengths gallery. And this is something that we did at Norwich when you sure. came in and worked with us in the old Kreitzberg library. And I'd love for you to just quickly maybe talk about what it is and why it works. Then I can share a little bit about how I experienced it. And then we can uh, kind of head into the, the conclusion of our, of our talk. Uh, part of uh, athlete self-awareness and team self-awareness is for athletes to look at their strengths and kind of their blind spots or shortcomings. And, and many times we, there can be a negativity bias where people can actually focus more on their negatives than they're positive. So, so we typically have uh, athletes take a strengths inventory, whether it's the values in action via strengths inventory or strengths finder 2.0. And out of that, they get to look at, you know, what are the things, what are their assets, what are their strengths that they see in themselves? What the strengths 360 strengths gallery is, is taking the, uh, taking your strengths, but then also going in, uh, looking at, at uh, predicting or uh, guesstimating the strengths of the other players on your team without already knowing that and seeing their list. So basically what happens is, is uh, players will have a, have a sheet of paper, a template with everybody's name will be written down on it. And uh, next to that, you'll have the list of strengths descriptions, whether it's the 24 via descriptions or the 35 um Strength finders, 2.0 descriptions. And then you can actually write one or two or three different strengths that you see in that person. You write it down on that list. And then each player, if you can imagine, visualize this, that, that each, each player on the team has a uh, half a sheet of sticky easel paper and they put that up on the wall all the way around. So you picture all the way around the room, team room, or we were doing in the Kreisberg library. Okay, and then with a marker, you write on the top of it your name, and then, then 
you're 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 there and uh, in front of your your uh, your sheet, and then what you do is you go, you know, you go one step clockwise to the next sheet, and that's where the exercise continues. And then what you do is you write down the strengths of that person that are on that next sheet. Mm. You've already done it there. You've already written them down, so you run that down there, and you continue going around till you end up back at your same spot again. Now, if somebody has more than one strength that's that's in frequency there, then you just put a check mark. So we've seen before people will have like five, six, seven check marks next to their name that, that, that they really know that person that they in there. And then what happens is then uh, typically breaking into some smaller groups, okay, um, and then actually go through you go through each athlete, and people within that players within that group tell two, three, or four different anecdotes or stories of why they think that strength comes alive for that person. Mm-hmm. So it allows for more of an intimate understanding of this is what I see in you. Mm-hmm. So the athlete or player says, this is how I see myself in the world. This is how my teammates see me. And, and it's sometimes athletes feel, you know, very self-conscious about having somebody say something so nice to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, and, and sometimes they're not even aware that they had that strength. Once they're told by somebody else, now they have it. They own it now in their lives. I remember doing this with one team once where uh, a woman began to cry, uh, a player uh, began to cry when we went through that. And, you know, there weren't tears of joy there. And so I went up because part of my job as a facilitator is to make sure that this is a safe environment. And I asked her, are you okay? What's going on? She goes, well, nobody has ever, ever said anything like this to me, positive ever. And this is the first time, and, and it feels good, but it felt bad that it happened before. That became a whole view of strategic objectives and polarity work that we went into with the team afterwards. Mm-hmm. It really helped to work and make this team work well. Mm-hmm. You know? so, so, so the strengths piece really, it, it creates overall, in most cases, it should create a space, safe space there too. You know, that, that allows for this um, to happen there. And it's a typical exercise that, that, that um, most teams really enjoy doing that. Yeah, and I can speak from experience. I thought it was probably one of the most powerful team-building experiences that we ever had in our four years at Norwich. And I remember, like you said, it, it really opens up an intimate space. And, you know, okay, yeah, you spend every day with your teammates, you're in the locker room, you're in the dorm rooms, you see them every day, but you're not necessarily vulnerable or being emotional or opening those doors to let's have a more intimate conversation about how we perceive each other, how we value each other and how we fit into this collective because, and I guess perhaps maybe it's part of the nature of competitive athletics where you have a lot of type A personalities and you show up, you do your job and you carry on, you know, and you know, everyone has to be macho or, you know, oh, there's no, you know, no, no time for the soft emotional, let's be honest and tell each other how we feel. But it is so important to build that intimacy. And, and I remember going around and it, it keeps bringing me back to the idea of the human ego and Neil Anderson, that everyone has a desire to feel appreciated and understood. And I know for me, I had a high level of self-confidence, you know, in my own life and in what I brought to the team and how I felt I positioned myself. But seeing that, you know, on that sheet and other people write down strengths that they see in me in the check marks. That was very, very powerful for me. And that was just a huge confidence boost and this huge kind of just this reassurance saying, you know, you, you do belong here. You do have value. Keep doing what you're doing. 
And it's just this huge motivation factor. But the most powerful part was actually when you get into those small groups and you have someone look you in your eyes and say, this is something that I thought about, or this was something that you did previously. Maybe that, you know, we have our blinders on and we don't really take the time to think about it. And you realize that, okay, maybe I did have a positive impact. And then you have the opportunity to share things you notice with other people. And you can, you can see it in someone's emotions and in their reaction that it genuinely impacts them and makes them feel better and makes them feel empowered. And I know, you know, a lot of the guys in the team, obviously I can't speak for everyone because I didn't go to everyone's dorm rooms or to their houses, but I know lots of guys still had them up either in their dorm rooms, you know, for the rest of the year or keep them, you know, somewhere safe and stash away and refresh them. Sometimes you need to, you know, you're in a little bit of a funk. It's a long season, you know, that's normal. Life, life is hard. It's some cold, dark winters in Vermont too. And you got school going on. And sometimes you just need to pull that sheet of paper and see, you know, my, at least as part of the team, because you're essentially, you know, a brotherhood or a family, you know, sure, sure. 23 brothers that I have or sisters, you know, depending on your, your team, that the closest people in my closest relationships here in this team and at school, you know, they think this of me, they think this of me, they think this of me, they remember that story. And, you know, it's such, such a powerful experience. And I, you know, after that experience too, I really, really recall feeling that the locker room it, it's hard to, it's hard to quantify. It's, it's almost ineffable, but it did feel like it was closer. Like it was tighter. Like we were even more in sync as one single cohesive unit. And, you know, sure enough, as we were doing this stuff, that goes back to what I'd mentioned earlier, talking about when we won that national championship was hero, where I had never been part of a single unit, a single cohesive unit that was so dialed in with the elements of hope, efficacy, or confidence, resilience, and optimism. And I do think this was an important part of it. And it was just such a, a great experience that you brought to our team that, you know, I would never, I would never have crossed my mind of the idea of, Hey, let's look at, you know, our strengths and tell each other about it. You know, it, it's uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful thing. So I, I'm really glad you do that. I think, you know, anyone that's interested in learning more should definitely reach out to you and, and see how, you know, they can implement that in their organizations, what, whatever organization that is. Yeah, it, exactly. It, it has, it has, you know, I, I, I've done this with the, uh, the the C suite with 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 corporations before uh, it can be used to, with almost any environment with any organization. Yeah, I love that. So before we get into the final uh, question, where I want to ask you for your advice for people, I would just first like to ask you, John, where can people find you? Where can they learn more about Jaeger uh, Leadership Group, about all of your books, and especially the Coaching Zone, which we've talked about a lot today? And and if they you know, want to learn more, they want to reach out to you and, and get some help with their teams and organizations. Where, where can people find you? Where can they learn more? Anything you want to plug in? Well, my, my email is john at jaegerleadership.com, jaegerleadership. Uh, two websites. One is jaegerleadership.com. And then the, the new, uh, for the new book, it's the, the coachingzonebook.com, hmm. coachingzonebook.com. Uh, those are three different ways to get in touch with me or to, you know, you know, to, to read a little bit more about some of the things that I can support and partner with an organization with. And, 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 uh, right now the, uh, we're looking at that launch coming out in, uh, either late, late, uh, March or early April. It'll be tens, you know, when this airs the book. Yeah. I think, uh, we're going to be timing it out really nice and I'll make sure that I, put all of those in the show notes and on the website as well. So if people are looking up, they can find the coaching zone book.com jaegerleadership.com And then John at jaegerleadership.com as well for your email, I believe, but I'll, I'll make sure I get it correctly when we, when I post it and share it. So 
so the final thing, what I, I love everyone I talk to, and I love to ask them, my show, Learn to Perform, I'm really trying to help people optimize their health, their happiness, and their performance. So I would love for you to share your advice uh, for people optimizing their health, their happiness, and performance. And obviously, you have a, a lot of history and experience and um, expertise on so many different aspects of life. So I'd, I'd love to hear what your pieces of advice are for people. I think, Brayden, it goes back to some of the things that I talked about earlier. It's, it's about having a, 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 a really strong level of self-awareness mm-hmm. you know, about um, how we see ourselves in the world that we're in and to, to, make, to make a difference that we can end, end up making a difference, not just with ourselves, but with other people. But self-awareness, self-regulation, mm-hmm. and then the third is self-compassion, okay, and to be able to... Uh, be able to take care of ourselves and not be have used generous understanding with ourselves instead of being overly judgmental. And I think during COVID, it's been probably even in a greater time where self-awareness, self-regulation and self-compassion have come in in this past year. Very, very important. Regarding uh, to optimize happiness, I think of the acronym PERMA, P-E-R-M-A, and this was um, coined by the, uh, the guru of positive psychology, uh, Martin Seligman, in the University of Pennsylvania. He stands for positive emotions. Okay, mm-hmm. We have negative emotions, but it's really important that we, we show our positive emotions too. Positive emotions. Secondly, R's for relationships. Okay, okay. Uh, E, I forgot in the middle there, is engagement. So it's positive emotions, engaging others, engagement, relationships. M is for meaning, and A is achievements and looking at that 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 mantra and how that that fits and to see how people can live an authentically uh, happy life is to really look and and identify with those five different uh, characteristics and one thing to optimize performance i would say is it's 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 developing uh, a collective aspects of of psychap you know it's it's developing a way that that we can use hope in our setting of goals, our pathways to get there in our agency and achieving them. Or secondly, is our, our, our efficacy or confidence that we have the capacity to, to learn new experiences and master them through mastering our former experiences. Okay. Um, third is that um, resilience and, you know, the capacity to bounce back, but not even just bounce back, but bounce forward is looking if we have negative belief systems that do come up. How can we reject some of those negative belief systems and bring in, bring in um, frames that actually work for us in our life? And fourth is, is, is uh, realistic optimism or optimism that, that allows us to uh, we have our leniency for the past, not being judgmental, too judgmental, uh, appreciating the, the present and uh, having opportunities for the future. This is work that's Sandra Schneider has done um, at the University of uh, South Florida. Wow, I love those. That's that's a, a super thorough answer. So I'm going to quickly recap because I took some notes here for the people listening in case they didn't catch all that. To optimize health, self-awareness, self-compassion, and self-regulation, which I think are, are phenomenal. And boy, has that really become oh, evident exactly. this year. It's, you definitely hit the nail on your head with that one. And then happiness is PERMA, which is positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishments. And then, of course, something we have touched about a lot for performance is psych cap. And so we go back to hero, which is hope. And then there's the efficacy or confidence. 
resilience, and then realistic optimism. So John, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I, I, I've learned so much out of this and I've taken so much out of reading the coaching zone, which I thank you again for the early look, but also, you know, with our time, I remember it fondly at Norwich University. It was in those brief little moments that had a, a major impact on me and, and our team and, and everyone. I mean, you know, who's to say whether or not that was the difference between winning a national championship or not, but it was definitely a contributing factor. And I know for every person that was a part of that organization, that that's going to be a highlight forever. So I can't thank you enough for what you're doing. Thank you. And, 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 and you know, you work there at Norwich as a player and then eventually as a, as a co-captain there. It's just that my opportunity to work with Norwich really fed me mm. a lot too. It allows me to, to learn and to grow too. So it's all, it's a, it's a, it's a dynamic balance in there. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's a little give and take, perhaps maybe that's a, a little bit of a polarity as well. We can that's right. throw into wrapping yeah. up. Okay. Well, John, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'm super excited to share this with everyone. You've got a ton of great stuff to, uh, to share and, and I hope that people, you know, enjoy it, get some value out of it and, and get in touch if they have any questions or, or need to learn more. That's great. Thanks, Braden. To discover more, this episode with all citations is available on the website, and you can also contact me on social media with any questions or comments. If you found this episode useful or think that it may help someone else, I encourage you to pass it along. Thank you all for joining me on this journey to lifelong health, happiness, and higher performance. And remember, always be grateful, love yourself, and serve others.